Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and it's this show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our special guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be none other than Bishop James Conley of the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska. You know, we most of our listeners know their bishop. We certainly know our bishop. <laughs> yes. um, but you and I have a great chance to talk to a lot of bishops, whether it's in the Catholic Medical Association uh, or some other organizations that we participate in. And among the bishops out there that are known, we have to say Bishop Conley is one of the greatest. He's the, he's the Episcopal director uh, or advisor, I should say, to the Catholic Medical Association. We all know how busy bishops are, uh, and for him to be able to take time of his schedule and travel and attend to those meetings and to be so interested in Catholic medicine is just a mark of his greatness. Uh, he has been a true shepherd for us in the CMA, and uh, it was through him probably more than just about any other bishop I've known just how they are so human. I think oftentimes we put them on a pedestal or if not on a pedestal, at a distance from us and that we just could never relate to them. And as you'll learn from listening to him, that is far from the truth. Yeah. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss uh, this interview with Bishop Conley. You will be amazed at his sincerity uh, and his transparency. And you can really um, I think you can really come to know the heart of this uh, shepherd. I mean, he's appointed by the Holy Father to his job. Not many of us can say that. And, and you know, when I was writing my book, White Christ Suffered, I wanted it to have a foreword, and he was the first name who came to mind to write it. Uh, number one, because of his concern for medical professionals um, in, in, in the CMA, but secondly, because he has suffered somewhat publicly, you know, with taking a year off a sabbatical to treat uh, depression and anxiety. He's not pulling any punches. I mean, he's going to talk about the fact that so often things like that would be hidden from view of the public and how he has taken the exact opposite tack. And I really respected that. So having somebody write the foreword who truly is grappling with a type of suffering that so many of us do, I thought was the right thing to do. You know, I wish that I could have asked him, um, did he feel that his openness and his willingness to be public with a personal condition was in any way influenced by his relationship uh, with St. John Paul II and his mm. willingness to so publicly mm. suffer and do the opposite of putting it you know, putting it behind closed doors. Uh, it's hard to imagine that he couldn't have been influenced by such a great shepherd. You know, you gave me some questions, and Andrew gave me some questions, because I, I interviewed him in person when we, when we were in Kansas uh, the second weekend in April. And uh, I incorporated questions you had. There were some that broached, you know, uh, did... Uh, did he ever lose faith, or how right. did the faith affect it? Uh, but that's interesting because John Paul II is one of his favorite people of all time. Yeah, and spoiler alert, he's going to say, listen carefully, uh, he's going to say that it was difficult to pray. Mm, uh, and yes. when I heard him say that, I just I, my stomach dropped. Imagine a bishop who's finding it difficult to pray uh, because of his uh, medical condition. Um, it's really it's really tough to hear, but it's such a beautiful story. Yeah, I think you'll all be able to identify with that. I can't imagine there's any person who's not had a time when it's difficult to pray. Uh, exactly. But it's probably time that we move on and get to the real heart of the matter, which is this episode's medical trivia question of the day. And, you know, the category is going to be anxiety and depression in America. So on April 2nd, actually less than a week before I interviewed Bishop Conley, a report came in from the Centers for Disease Control in its uh, Mortality and Morbidity Weekly Report. And it presented data from a nationwide household survey to see what effects the COVID-19 pandemic had on um, anxiety and depression. And so the study examined changes between August of 2020 and February of 2021. So the question for you to cogitate on is, what percentage of Americans had reported symptoms of anxiety or depression or both as of early February 2021. As usual, you're going to have to hang on till after the guest interview for the end of the show for the answer. But we'll be back with Bishop Conley and more on this episode of Dr. Doctor. 
Welcome to our guest interview on Dr. Doctor today. I am pleased to be sitting across the table from Bishop James Conley, the Bishop of Lincoln, Nebraska. He's also uh, known to me because he's the Episcopal Advisor for the Catholic Medical Association, and we attend board meetings together. He's also a convert to the Catholic faith uh, during his time uh, in college at the University of Kansas, and he had a unique experience of being on leave of absence from his diocese for a year for the treatment of depression and anxiety. And this is the, the second in a series of shows where we doctors and you listeners are going to be learning from the experiences through the eyes of a patient. What can we know to, to be better in uh, caring for those who are ill? Bishop Conley, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Dr. McGovern. It's great to be on your show. You know, you announced in late 2019 that you were going to take a leave of absence to treat depression, anxiety, and I remember tinnitus. And you've been unusually forthcoming with your story, uh, which is contrary to the way bishops and priests have traditionally been over time. They usually keep it very private. So what led you to be transparent with this and open instead of trying to keep it, you know, private, which wouldn't have been wrong? Right. Well, there's really three reasons. One, um, I was got to the point where I just uh, had to share it with uh, others so that I could uh, get some help, reach out. The second reason was, um, you know, in this climate in which we live, if you don't uh, tell some, someone why you're taking a leave of absence, there's all kinds of speculation of like, oh, something's really, really wrong with this yes, person. Yes, the, you know? the abuse crisis. Abuse crisis, exactly, especially as a bishop and as such a public person. Yes. And the third reason was I just prayed to the Lord, and the Lord just said, just be, just be open and just, uh, you know, just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. I, I couldn't not tell the truth. Very good. Well, I want to go back, you know, a little interaction I've had with you. Late in the summer of 2018, uh, we had a phone call scheduled that you kept uh, for Friday morning, August 3rd. But the day before that, I remember reading in the news that you had a really challenging event happen with a, a current or former priest in your diocese. Uh, I was actually surprised you kept the appointment, but it dealt with our outreach to pre-medical students at the upcoming uh, Fellowship at Catholic University Seek conference that year, and you were still incredibly helpful with that, but I could tell at that point things were already weighing heavily on you. So how did the events of that summer of 2018 uh, play in to your eventual desire a little over a year later to take that leave of absence? Well, that really is when it all happened. Uh, as I look back on it, of course, at the time, uh, I wasn't really aware of it because really the first part, the first half of 2018 was a great, uh, a great first half of the year. And the summer of 2018, when I look back on it, or when I looked back on it, uh, not only were there some difficulties I had to face in my own diocese with priestly misconduct, but if you remember, that was the summer where the McCarrick uh, uh, scandal was just announced. Yes, yes. The Pennsylvania grand jury report came out uh, in August, a little bit after our phone call. And our, our own state attorney general uh, launched an investigation on all three dioceses with regard to sexual abuse. So those were three uh, huge challenges that were um, part of that summer. And then in, in my own diocese, uh, we had to close, ended up closing a couple of schools later on that fall. And then one of my priests, uh, who was a younger priest than I was, I am, he uh, died, and that's always a hard thing for a bishop to lose one of his priest's sons. Um, so it was a combination of things that began in that August of 2018. I, I can only imagine. I, I remember talking to you a year or two before at a, at, at a mid-year leadership training meeting of the CMA, and you commented to me that, you know, things generally don't bother me. They usually just kind of roll off of me. And I know one of the quotes that you like, uh, is St. John the 23rd, when he was Pope, used to say, it's your church, Lord, I'm going to bed. You know, what happened to, you know, that statement that things generally have never bothered you to getting to this point? What, was it kind of humbling, surprising? Well, yes, uh, both, humbling and surprising. Um, I, I don't have any, uh, you know, any history of mental illness in my family. I don't have any traumatic events that happened in my childhood. I have wonderful, I have wonderful mother and father who were very loving and caring for me and my sister. And uh, you're right, my temperament is such that um, I did just kind of let things roll off my back, and I never really got too... Uh, upset about uh, much of anything. And so it was very surprising 
that I would uh, get to the point where I wasn't sleeping, get to the point where I was very anxious about, uh, about everything, and to the point where I was eventually diagnosed with major depressive, depressive disorder. And what was your experience with the understanding of mental illness, both growing up as a child, as a young man, and then as a priest? I didn't really have any experiential contact with mental illness by way of my family um, and even by way of my friends. Or if I did, I really didn't pay much attention to it because, I, again, like I said, I didn't really uh, have to deal with anything like that. But I think what as I look back on it and as I learn and I continue to learn, I'm learning to this day more and more, I still am in recovery mode. I think we're all in recovery <laughs> mode at some point, you know, Until since, heaven, yes. since the fall. <laughs> yes. But um, I know that where I started to experience these symptoms, which eventually diagnosed as depression, um, I was taking on or at least um, thinking about these problems in my diocese um, and not following my own advice that uh, St. John the 23rd, you know, it's your church, Lord, I'm going to bed. I was not going to bed. I was thinking and trying to figure out how to solve some of these challenges, and it was preoccupying my mind, and, and eventually uh, I was losing sleep. You know, day after day, I think I went for a number of months without ever getting a good night's sleep. So it, it sounds like the, the crux of your challenges were thinking about the problems over and over and over again. Absolutely, absolutely. The mind just going uh, over and over and over these problems, trying to figure out a solution and trying to solve them. And, you know, that's a lot of the problem with anxiety. Anxiety is a thought disorder. It's continuing to wrestle with unhelpful thoughts, as I've been taught by people who know more than me. So in your own treatment, what is your understanding of the relationship for you between your anxiety and the depression? Did one follow the other? Did they come at the same time, or are they unrelated? Uh, the depression followed the anxiety, um, and then you throw in there tinnitus. Um, yeah, where did that come from? I have no idea. That came, that, that first, I woke up one morning in September of 2019 with this ringing in my ears, and uh, I, I said the same thing. Where did this come from? And I thought, well, maybe it's just I haven't woken up uh, fully yet, and it'll go away in the afternoon, and it, and it stayed with me, and it's still with me now. Oh, no. It's still, I'm still dealing with it now. I've kind of uh, gotten used to it uh, a little more, but it, that has not been resolved in uh, – maybe someday and people who have it and experience it and i've talked to physicians about it yes no one really knows how where it comes from and nobody really knows how to get rid of it because you can't measure it objectively you only feel it subjectively exactly exactly <sighs> you can't measure it in a studio or with an audiologist no you hear it in your brain uh and no one else hears it but you um now it, sometimes it's worse than others but it's still there um, and I do have these little hearing aids that I wear that kind of mask over. Uh, <laughs> noise canceling? <laughs> exactly. They're, they're like noise cancelers. They're like little noise cancelers. But, but so, so um, I think what happened in my own kind of analysis uh, was that the anxiety was first. Yes. And then um, as the anxiety continued, uh, I was uh, experiencing insomnia. The insomnia was then making, more, me, making me more and more fatigued. And as I got more and more fatigued, I began to experience um, um, a, a lack of interest in things. Oh, yes. And, you know, I lost that joy yes. in what I was doing. And then, uh, as you were talking, you know, my Snickers bar. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't find that. It was a talk that... that uh, on joy, yes. Yeah, on joy. <laughs> so, and that's the strangest thing, because I've always been, I've never been, uh, you know, I've never uh, tended towards depression, and I've always been a very joyful person. Yes. But, uh, you know, there's a Greek word for, for this. It's called uh, anhedonia. Yeah, yes. And it's a, a lack of joy, you know. And then when that hit... That was really devastating uh, when you just don't have any interest or joy in what you're doing. Is that what led you to seek medical help? It did. Now, I tried to tough it out for a while. Um, I, I, when I first experienced 
when I first started noticing it, I remember it was, okay, we, we started in August of 2018. Yes. Um, I really started noticing it uh, in, in January and February of 2019. Okay. And that's when I, when I went to the Mayo Clinic yes. in, in March um, because I had a couple of friends who we both know yes. uh, who work at the Mayo <laughs> Clinic and uh, went up and stayed at one of their houses and said, I got to get a full physical. Yes. I don't know what's going on And here. they do that as well as anyone in the world. They there. do. And it takes about a day and a half and they run you, you know, from top to bottom. Yes. And that's when I uh, was diagnosed with uh, major depressive di- disorder. And when you heard that, what did you feel? Well, I, th- I, I was disappointed, but I wasn't surprised at that point because I knew that something was going wrong. And what did they recommend you do? Well, they recommended the, that I seek counseling and that I go on some kind of medication to address uh, the symptoms, which I did both. Um, and I said, well, if this is what it is and this is the diagnosis, then okay, we'll, we'll head down that path. And um, I began counseling and, and I began the medications. And um, as you know, in medications for depression, uh, it's a hit and miss, trial and error. Right. And it takes weeks to kick in. It takes weeks to kick in. That was probably one of the most frustrating things. Yes. Just kind of waiting. And I said, no, I'm not feeling any better. Well, then let's try this. And then five weeks later, no, I'm not feeling any better. Let's try this. Mm. And that was uh, going on throughout then the summer of 2019 and into the fall. And I really wasn't getting any better. Um, and uh, at that point in time, um, I was uh, having discussions with some of my closest friends. I hadn't really told many people, but my closest uh, bishop friends, mm-hmm. especially uh, Archbishop Coakley, who's a, a childhood friend. We were on the same baseball team in the seventh <laughs> grade. He's the Archbishop of Oklahoma City. And, and your positions on the team were? Uh, he was outfield, and I was a pitcher. Very good. <laughs> and my dad was a coach. <laughs> and then Bishop Jim Wall. Uh, who's another close friend, Bishop of Gallatin, Mexico, mm-hmm. and and my sister, um, you know, who's not Catholic because I'm a convert. Yes, um, but she knows me well, and my younger sister. Um, and so um, between those three, um, they all kind of decided or agreed upon the fact that I need to take some time off. So when you reach this point that. You know, what I'm doing isn't working. You know, the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over and getting the expected different results. result, but you get the same. So, you know, uh, one of my co-hosts uh, wanted to know, how did the depression affect how you felt about the faith? Uh, yeah. Well, it became more and more difficult to pray. Um, because it's interesting when you look, I mean, we're body and soul. As St. Thomas says, grace builds upon nature. But if nature is suffering, if your body is suffering, and you know, if you look at an illness like depression or anxiety, mm-hmm. it's bodily. Yes, and it's 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 an illness of the body, but it affects the mind, the whole person, the whole person. Yes, and so therefore, and the mind is very important in, in the spiritual life. So there is this sort of thin line between psychology yes. and spirituality. Very and that's good. why I think psychologists can be very helpful if they're believers as well, because yes. they work together. And we want to get more deeply into that issue later on, but I'd, I'd like to you know, go through your story, too. And, and so uh, Chris Stroud also wants to know, did you feel less holy? Did I feel less holy? Well, I felt rotten. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's less holy, but I did. You know, I think there, um, I did start to feel... Uh, less competent, you know, in, ah. my, in my role as bishop. And then, of course, I fell into, and I really hadn't suffered much from this, but I fell into the trap of comparison. Uh, so, you know, the I was, thief of joy. The thief of joy, really. I mean, you, you know, you're looking at other bishops uh, and looking at other dioceses, and you're saying, gosh, you know, something good is happening in another diocese, and you, instead of rejoicing and praising God, you're saying, well, gosh, maybe I could do that in my diocese, or I should do that in my diocese. And ha- had that been something you would have done five years earlier? No. Okay. No. I was, uh, you know, I was just, uh, I felt that, you know, we're, and I do st- still think we have a great diocese, and we, uh, the Lincoln Diocese yes, is, is a strong diocese, but I wasn't seeing that. That, that's, that, it was distorted. You know? So you I was tend to see the, the negative, yes. Exactly, the negative A preferential thoughts. option for the negative. The preferential <laughs> option for the negative, exactly. I was looking at the things that were going wrong, 
in my diocese, and every diocese has stuff going wrong. Yes. Um, but and not looking at what was going right, and there were a lot of good things, and still are a lot of good things going right in my diocese. But I couldn't see those good things. I was always seeing the bad things, and I'd see the good things in other dioceses, and then I'd say, "Well, gosh, I'm not, I'm not a good shepherd. I'm not, I'm not shepherding my people as I should. I'm not, I'm not competent." Now, were were the people near you afraid to point out the fact that you weren't thinking rationally about those things? You know, as bishop, I mean, some people are afraid to tell a bishop. You know, th- right. that doesn't seem right. Yes. Well, um, I would have to say, and I hope nobody in my diocese is listening to this program, but I, would, <laughs> I would have to say that probably, and it's probably true, and I know it's true in a lot of dioceses, um, people tend not to criticize sure. the bishop, you know. Or question. Or question the bishop. And, of course, I've, I've said this to others. I said, the worst thing you can say to me is, whatever you want, bishop. Ah, and I have to say that my there there were people around me and my senior staff um, that were um, that were probably wondering how I was doing and and some were were asking you know questions like how are you feeling today Bishop and and I was honest with some of them especially those closest to sure. me but um, we were all sort of in this together and working together and kind of trying to push through everything but when the shepherd is suffering it's hard for his collaborators his sheep, his sheep to kind of follow along you know and yes. and i think people probably were a little hesitant to say bishop maybe uh, you ought to take some time off you know so then you went through a process that allowed you to get permission to leave your diocese and that had to go all the way up to the pope himself through the uh, nuncio uh, archbishop christophe pierre correct correct in fact um I don't know when this uh, program is going to be aired, but uh, on my way down here to Benedictine College, uh, I got a call from Archbishop Pierre. Just, ah. And it was great. It was just a call, just, hey, how you doing? No, you know, whenever you see that, that phone number <laughs> yes. from the Apostolic Nunciature in Washington, D.C., you know, it's like the Pope calling, and it's usually something that's pretty serious. Yes. But this call... Uh, God bless him. Was just uh, from Archbishop Pierre. Was just uh, I just saw you. You know, I was just wondering how you're doing, how you're getting along. It's been about six months since you've been back on the job, Thanks et cetera, et cetera. And so we had a great, delightful conversation. So, what day did you leave your diocese for uh, the Phoenix area for your leave of absence? Uh, it was the feast of Saint Lucy, December thirteenth. Yes. And, um, 2019, a 20, few months before the pandemic. Exactly. Yes, I, I tell people, you know, uh, I, I received permission to take a medical leave of absence, and then a few months later, the whole world took a medical leave of absence. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, little did we know that that was going to happen. And when you were down there, what was the nature of the care team you assembled? Well, let me back up a little bit. Okay. Um, the last in-person U.S. Bishops Conference ah. we've had uh, was in November of 2019 yes, yes. and in Baltimore, where we always meet uh, or we, we, when it's not a pandemic. <laughs> yes. um, and it's always in November. It's always about the middle of November. And so at that point in time, uh, as I was talking earlier, uh, I had, through my sister and a, a couple of bishop friends, come to the conclusion I needed to ask permission for some right. time off. And so, but I had to have a plan. And so ah. I met with Bishop Olmsted, who was of Phoenix. a Phoenix, Bishop of Phoenix, who was my bishop in Wichita when I was a priest in mm. Wichita, and who is from the Diocese of Lincoln. So ah. he's got a lot of connections. Yes. And so I, and I wanted to go someplace sunny. I knew that it would be <laughs> oh, a, it, it a long winter. It, it does. Yes. It does. And if, I'm, if I've got depression, I don't want to go someplace that's going to be cold and cloudy for the next five months. Correct. So, uh, or however long I ended up being away. Um, so I talked to him, and he immediately um, said, yes, we've got a, a retreat house. Actually, it was through Bishop Wall, who was a priest, who was a priest of Phoenix before he was named Bishop mm. in Gallup. We have a retreat house um, called Mount Claret, which has these little casitas there at the base <laughs> of Camelback Mountain. Yes. And there's one that's empty. And if you want to uh, come and stay there, you're welcome to stay there. And then through a physician who is also the physician of Bishop Olmsted and Bishop Wall, um, 
he would help me set up my care team. Very good. Um, a good Catholic physician, Dr. Frank Agnone, who um, who has been wonderful and a really strong Catholic. He's an internist, but he has a specialty in pharmacology. So oh. he so he understands uh, medications. Very good. So um, and then he Bishop Olmsted suggested a spiritual director, and then a psychotherapist. Yes. And, and both of them in Phoenix. And so once I had that together. Um, I met with the Apostolic Nuncio in Baltimore and uh, told him that uh, this is the first time I'd really talked to him about this. Told him that I really have been diagnosed with uh, depression and fatigue and, and this tinnitus and anxiety, and I just need to get away. And um, and I've got this plan set up. And after hearing it, he said, "Wonderful." He says, uh, "Sounds like you've got a good plan set up." He said, "Just put all this in writing." Um, and write to me, and I will send that on to Rome, to the Pope, which I didn't know he had to do that, but he, <laughs> now I do. And he said, and uh, we should be able to to, uh, to accomplish this uh, in short order. So um, I went home and back to Lincoln. Um, I remember I had to give a retreat. I always give a retreat in Advent. Mm. And I was giving a retreat, and I got a call from the nuncio and said that you've got permission. And when do you want to leave? I said, ASAP. Because I was yes. still kind of toughing it out. Oh, yeah. That, just kind of trying to get up each day and do my job. And so um, that was Monday, and Friday was the Feast of St. Lucy. And so I left on the 13th and uh, came down to uh, Phoenix then, and that's when I started my time away. And that's a good time to take a break between the halves of this episode. We'll be back uh, in a minute again with Bishop James Connolly and his journey through the Valley of Phoenix treating depression and anxiety here on Dr. Doctor. We're back with Bishop James Connolly for the rest of his insightful interview about his treatment uh, and coming back from that for uh, depression and anxiety. So Bishop, you're in Phoenix, you're staying in the casita at the base of Camelback Mountain. And as we've discussed offline, you saw kind of three keys to your improvement. There was a certain psychotherapist, um, a certain psychiatrist, and a family. Correct. Tell us about those things in whatever order you'd like. And I would also add a spiritual director. I'm sorry, spiritual director. I forgot about that. Four, four different things that were important. They were very important, and they uh, were all Catholic. And I think that was important because, um, you know, a bishop is a strange animal in the sense <laughs> that uh, there's only a few of us, and the life of a bishop um, is very unique. Uh, I mean, I suppose people... Anybody could say that, but it is it is a different kind of yes. uh, life, and um, it was important for me to uh, have caregivers who at least had an understanding of what a bishop is, and an understanding of what the faith is, and a, and a believing faith. And I think what that helps is to know that you're being treated as James Conley, not as a depression patient. Correct. Correct. And, uh, you know, and I know, and but I also recognize that they have uh, professional competency in their fields. Yes. I mean, it's not, like you've, we've talked about before, you, couldn't, you can't just pray these things away. No, no, you, you can't. And, and that's an error I think some people make on both sides. I mean, you have to be both um, compassionate and competent. It can't be just one or the other. Correct, correct. And so all of these elements that were part of my care team, all these people who were part of my care team, I think provided um, service to me, if I can put it that way, mm -hmm. um, which helped me to heal in a holistic way. Um, not just, for example, medications from the psychiatrist and not just therapy from the psychotherapy therapist, but, um, but altogether, the, spir the, the spiritual direction was very important. I went on a retreat uh, after about four months, which was very important to the whole uh, time there in, uh, in Phoenix. And also the family. I mentioned this family. Yes. They were students of mine when I was chaplain to the University of Dallas Rome program, and I've known them for over 20 years. Baptized their youngest, <laughs> and um, they just are been good friends. Um, I haven't been able to see them too much over the years, 
But while I was away in Phoenix, I was over there three nights a week uh, eating dinner and just, you know, there with the family and doing, you know, just being there part of the, it just basically brought me in as part of the family. And this is during the pandemic, during the sheltering in place, and how many people in the world really needed social therapy? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That was one thing. Like uh, I was saying, you know, I went on medical leave and now the whole world goes on medical leave. Yes. And I'm isolated in this little casita there at that retreat house and nothing is everybody's in their homes they're sheltering in place yes. so being with this family was huge and being able to talk and visit and uh, being part of a kind of a normal family uh, situation was very important for my own recovery and uh, I look back at that just as important as psychotherapy or as medications or anything else that I was doing in Phoenix so an experience of normal life, because I know it's easy to get locked in our thoughts, and then you think your thoughts are reality, and oftentimes our thoughts are mistaken. Uh, and so that dose of reality, especially with little kids around, it really gives you a jolt for the good sometimes. That's right. In fact, you know, this the, the, there was there was never a dull moment in this house. The kids <laughs> running around, and that's what I needed. I needed to have that because you live in your own thoughts, and as you say, they can deceive you. Yes, and they can really kind of make make a world of its own which is not good not grounded in reality uh, is there any one area that you thought was most important or do you think that if any of these pieces were missing you wouldn't have progressed as well as you did i think the latter i think that um the one i i can't really think of one that is more important than the other but if any of those were missing um, I think I would not have experienced uh, kind of the, the progression of, of healing that I did um, uh, because it, they all kind of worked together. When did you start to feel that you were healing, that you were getting better, that you could look back and say, oh, I'm better than I was four weeks ago or whatever? Well, I started to really feel like I was making some improvement, but still with a long ways to go after about six months six months so this six would have been june. june and part of it was i had a wedding that i was uh going to be going to because i a uh, close friend's daughter was getting married mm -hmm. and i just that was my goal i'm gonna get better by then <laughs> but it was it was good because it did set a marker for yes me. it did set I a think marker there's value for me. to that but i was not where i needed to be because as you know i didn't go back to the diocese right. until november 13th so 11 months 11 months to the day is when i went back so that time you might ask what was that time between the wedding which was the 26th of june okay. and the 13th of november and this was um this was a recommendation of my psychotherapist because he could tell too that i he says you don't want to go you don't want to relapse he says, I don't think you're ready to go back. He says, why don't you talk to some of your bishop friends and why don't you shadow them for a month? Yes. And so um, I talked to Archbishop Coakley and I said, hey, you know, hey, can I come up to Oklahoma City and, and live with you for a month? And he said, absolutely, you know, absolutely. And then uh, by that time I'd gotten a puppy <laughs> and uh, Bishop Wall and I went to, to got golden retrievers together oh, um, in El Paso. Incredibly so. therapeutic animals. The, that's right. <laughs> Mine was th therapeutic, uh, but now I've it's gone beyond therapy. <laughs> but um, so but does he, it run the chancery now? Uh, no. Well, I, yeah, sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he just ha he has a dog as well, so I knew he he's dog friendly. So. Uh, after going back uh, in, Ju in July to, to spend um, some time with my mother, who was failing, and that's another part of the puzzle because she ended up uh, dying in December, December 19th. Oh. Um, but I thank God that he allowed me to be strong enough to be able to deal with that yes. tragedy. I mean, tragedy, she was 92, but she tested positive for COVID. So oh. she was one of the victims of the yes. pandemic. But I was able to celebrate her funeral uh, and to get through that. And more importantly, I was able to see her and visit her when I came back from Phoenix. Ah, and so the time. month of July, I spent a lot of time with my mom. And then I went down for the month of August to Oklahoma City and shadowed Archbishop Coakley. And then I went to Kansas City and shadowed Archbishop Nauman, who's another good friend. <laughs> Wonderful man. And, um, and lived with a friend of mine in his parish. And, was, and so I began to 
to when I was in Kansas City, I began to um, do more pastoral ministry. Oh, uh, I took confirmations with Archbishop oh, Nauman, and and I took uh, masses, Sunday masses, for Father Richard McDonald at Holy Angels, where I was living, and so I was just easing back into so things. So, what was your last day in Phoenix? My last day in Phoenix was June twentieth. Oh, so with the wedding, you left. Yes, and I didn't come back. Okay, so it partly was, because it was getting up in the hundreds. <laughs> so it was it was a slow reentry, at the recommendation of your a psychotherapist. Oh, wonderful! Was it at all humbling or humiliating to be shadowing someone doing a job you had been doing for years? Well, because both of these archbishops were such good friends, yes. and I had so much respect and esteem for them, um, it was not. It was, it was just, uh, they knew, and they were wonderful. They knew that uh, they were helping me, you know, make my way back, so to speak, and allowing me to sort of shadow them and just do whatever I could, was able to do. So how did you know it was time to leave Phoenix? What was different besides the goal you had set for being at that wedding? Well, um, I think the I think that I was well enough to do minimal work, and that I needed to get back closer to home, and I needed to get back doing some kind of Episcopal work, and so, I wasn't able to do it in Phoenix. Right. But although well, I take back, I did. I uh, Bishop Olmsted did. Um, I was able to. Uh, offer mass for a group of sisters, mm-hmm. uh, probably from about May to July. So what was different in your experience of depression and anxiety that you knew you could go and do more work? Um, I think that I was able just to to offer mass publicly. That's you know, sounds pretty elementary, but that was really what my goal was to be able to stand up in front of a congregation and to preach. So was this a confidence level? I mean, what was the yeah. internal experience? You knew what you could do externally, but because what was different internally? Um, I think confidence and the ability to be able to um, do the things that I was able to do for years, decades. I've been a priest for 36 years. So so were your ruminations, were your stewing on your thoughts, was that decreasing? It was, um, but it wasn't decreasing to the point where I felt like I could actually go back to work. But it was better. Better. It was better. It was incrementally better. Okay. So my recovery was really, I describe it sort of in plateaus. Mm. I would get a certain point, and I'd stay on this plateau for maybe four, three or four weeks, and then I'd go up a little better, be a feel, feel a little better in three or four more weeks. Yes. So there were these plateaus so that fi- by the time I finished with Archbishop Nauman, which was mid-October of this past year, um, I left Phoenix in June. Yes. Spent that month of July with my family, and then Oklahoma City in August, September Kansas City, and then at that mid-October, I was feeling like I was ready to go back. In fact, I did move back, but then I wait. I had to wait yes, to get permission. permission, and that seemed like forever. But that was a slow period of time in in Rome. Uh-oh. And uh, <laughs> I can imagine. So I was at home, and I was just basically, um, and I, I was basically just waiting to get the permission to go back. How do you live your life differently now than before you went to Phoenix? Well, I don't. I I don't think I don't I don't live in a way where I believe that it's all up to me you know that I can't and and that I can't fix everything I'm I'm learning to let things go and to trust more in God I thought I I did but I I, I didn't and to allow other people as well to you know to delegate things uh, to other people um, but also to to live a, b- a better balanced life, and that's what that's what I'm still working on now. Getting enough sleep, which I've I'm, I'm getting good sleep now. Uh, getting exercise, I'm going to work on that. I mean, I used to run yes. marathons and half marathons, and I haven't really got to that point yet because my energy level is not quite. But I'm I'm biking now more. Good. And um, I'm trying to get for me what's 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 the hardest one of the hardest things about being a bishop is the administrative work, mm. and I. Uh, I am going, I'm only going into the, I'm going to the office at 10 o'clock and leaving at three and that's it. 
And I go home and I can read, which I love to do, but I hadn't been able to do much of that. Um, and uh, play with Stella, my dog, in the <laughs> af- in the evening. And now we're in confirmation season, so I'm doing more confirmations in the evening. But I'm, my lifestyle, I'm trying to, to live a more balanced lifestyle. Some reflections. You know, there are people out there suffering with depression and anxiety who have been diagnosed and who haven't been diagnosed. And there's a fear among some Catholics about the relationship between psychology and, and faith. What is a healthy integration of faith and psychology look like? That's a very good question because, um, well, first of all, the first part of the question is, um, you know, those who might be suffering from mild depression, mild anxiety, mm-hmm. or, or more severe. First of all, I would say don't keep it in to reach out to someone you trust mm-hmm. and to talk about it. And if you need to see a professional, then don't be afraid to do that. But I would be picky about who you go see. Um, I think in every community, you can find a good Catholic psychologist. Now, it's not 100% that you need a Catholic psychologist, but one thing about a Catholic psychologist is they understand uh, the spiritual life, and they understand how spirituality and psychology work together. They they don't replace each other, but they're complementary. And I think that's important. And I think that... um, Having a, a Catholic uh, caregiver helps you to integrate your spirituality um, with your psychological health. Right. I don't think anybody wants somebody who looks down upon their deepest beliefs. We want somebody who respects them and, if possible, agrees with them because we'll probably naturally trust them more. Is I think so. Fair? I think so. I think so because I trusted absolutely my caregivers, and we were on the same page from day one. Uh, the, the topic of suffering. You know, when people are suffering, they feel hopeless. H- how can we do something positive with our suffering and in that state of suffering when we feel hopeless? That's another great question because that was, I struggled with that too. Because when you lose joy, you lose hope. Yes. And you don't think it's ever going to change. And I think the, if, the most important thing to keep in mind is that it will change, that you will get better, that there is hope. It it may take a while. You don't know how everybody is different, but there's light at the end of the tunnel, and I believe that, and I think everyone has to believe that because you can convince yourself that you're never going to change, that you're always going to be like that. Oh, yes. It feels like that. And I can... And I can understand why people think of suicide. I mean, I, I didn't, I knew in my own faith that I couldn't, that wasn't an option, but I could understand why some people would think it's an option because it's so dark and there's no joy and there's no hope and you can see how someone might want to take their life. But I say, don't, keep going forward. You know, one of the, <laughs> one of the uh, expressions I use, and this isn't theological, but it's something that Winston Churchill once said, if it feels like you're going through hell, keep going. Because <laughs> you don't want to stay there. You don't want to stay there, and you keep moving. You keep moving, and eventually you'll move through it. I believe that. Everyone will. Everyone will move through it, no matter how deep and dark it is. Churchill, call, Churchill suffered from depression. He called it the black dog. Oh, I didn't know that. He called it the black dog. And, and, and those words, I mean, those words, and if it feels like you're going through hell, keep going. Because I did feel like I was going through hell sometimes. What would you say to people who think that uh, others who are suffering from depression are doing it because they just have a weak spiritual life? Oh, completely false. Because... It really doesn't have to do with, um, you know, spirituality. Um, it's, um, it's, 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 it's a, again, it's an illness. It's an illness. It's, it's like diabetes, let's say, or something, uh, you know, it, it's something that you don't cause. Right. Um, you can't pray hard enough to get rid of diabetes. Right. You know, just pray harder, 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 and diabetes goes away. Same way with de- depression or anxiety. You know, just pray more and more and more, and it's going to go away. And, and speaking of prayer, when we're suffering, that seems to be the hardest time to pray. H- how do you pray when you don't feel like praying because you're suffering? That is a hard thing. Uh, you know, I say Mass every day, and um, for the first time in my life, I had to struggle to say Mass. Wow. And I used to enjoy, enjoy saying, now that joy is back, thanks be to God. And I would say that during those months uh, down in Phoenix, there were only two days where I just couldn't drag myself to say Mass. Mm. And those were the worst days. Ah. 
because I knew that I just need to I, I, I just need to say the mass I need to celebrate the mass for the good of you know that it that it offers for the world but also for my own good and the breviary, which is kind of what we make a promise to say when we're ordained deacons, as all priests do, and that's the Psalms. The Psalms were so good. Yes. The Psalms just speak to your heart. You know, the the, the suffering of the Psalms. Yes. And it, that, was, that was probably one of the things spiritually that was the most, you know, strengthening for me is just reading through the Psalms. And then the rosary. And, you know, sometimes that the beautiful thing about the rosary um, is that you know it's 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 all laid out for you. You yes. don't have to think about it. Right. You pray those Hail Marys and Our Fathers, and you, and you, and you try to meditate on those mysteries. But even if you don't do a good job on meditating through the mysteries, you get through the beads. Yes. And you finish. And that's a, that's a prayer that I tried to say every day um, while I was, and that and that, I held on like a chain holding <laughs> holding me up. Yeah, and when you could point to an accomplishment, well, I did do something today. When you're depressed, that helps you reach another little plateau, even right. for that day. So, you know, wrapping up, you know, this is the official show of the Catholic Medical Association. We want to help the formation of Catholic physicians, but also nurses and other professionals. What advice from your experience do you have for us who are trying to be the best Catholic healthcare professionals we can be? What do you recommend for us so that we can be who are, we are meant to be as those caregivers? Well, I think um, what I've said before, the attitude, and I think there's a lot of similarities between uh, a physician and a bishop because we're, you know, we're both caring for souls and we're both caring for people. Um, that you trust in God because he's the ultimate physician and that you do the best you can do but that you're not the one that's going to fix someone. You know, you're, not the, you're not going to heal. You might assist as an instrument in healing someone and you do the best you do, and, but you're not the one that ultimately fixes someone. God is the one. And so you've got to be able to let go of that and to let God yes. do his work and trust in that. And at the end of the day, you go home, and like St. John the 23rd says, Lord, it's your church. I'm going to bed. And you get up, and you do it again. And you don't take it home with you, and you don't get frustrated with, you know, whatever it is you're, you're struggling with, but you l learn to let it go. What final words would you like to leave our listeners with? Uh, I think that uh, maybe uh, those, more and more people, as we both know, suffer from depression and anxiety, especially since the pandemic has hit us. Oh, yes. And I would say um, for those either who are suffering from some form of this, either anxiety or depression or some, some form of, of uh, related uh, illness to um, not despair, or you might know someone, a daughter, a husband, you know, a mother or father, that you um, trust in the healing of God and that you um, pray for the person and that you have hope that you can get through this, that you can find joy again, that joy is there, joy will be, joy will come back one day and that you can kind of persevere through this time of darkness to get to the light. Bishop James Conley, thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Thank you. And we're back with the end of the show and the answer to the medical trivia question, which was how many, what percentage of Americans as of February 1st had symptoms of either anxiety or depression or both? Yeah, and it's it's not surprising. It's a high number, and the answer is forty-one point five percent, and that's up five percent uh, from August. If we break that down a little bit, thirty-six percent of them had anxiety. That was usually around eighteen percent from other surveys, and twenty-eight percent uh, depression. So really, an easy third of people. Um, with anxiety. And the reason those don't add up to 41 and a half is anxiety and depression often run together, mm. as we learned from Bishop Conley. So, Chris, listening to this, what are your top three takeaways for this episode? Well, I think the first one has to be as simple as it sounds is that uh, our bishops are regular people. I mean, these are holy called uh, men, um, but they are also fragile. Um, and, you know, there's the old saying that God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. <laughs> yes. and, and our bishops, they have feelings, uh, they have vulnerabilities, they become ill, and in this case they suffer mental illness, uh, and we need to remember that. 
Uh, I think secondly, and it's a very practical point, there is just absolutely no reason to hide mental illness. Right. Nobody um, benefits. Right. You wouldn't hide diabetes. You wouldn't hide cardiovascular disease. And uh, you shouldn't, and, and for even greater reasons, you shouldn't hide mental illness because listening to the uh, to the bishop, the other thing that we can take away is that he won. He, he beat this disease and has made a full recovery, and, and his life is back. In well, order. he wouldn't say full, but he, he is back functioning as a bishop, but he definitely yeah. major progress, yes. Yeah. And then lastly, uh, we need to not fear affirming and also constructively criticizing ah. our shepherds. You know, he there was a phrase that he said during the interview, one of the worst things was people would say to him, whatever you want, Bishop, ah, um, yes. which just empowered him to work himself harder uh, and to really make his disease uh, worse. And certainly our bishops need to be affirmed and they need to hear from us. But if we have concerns about their health or maybe about their shepherding, uh, they want to hear from us. They want our prayers. They want our input. They want our feedback. Uh, and it's really our duty to give them that. You know, one of the things he said that uh, surprised me was that a great source of his anxiety was that he was comparing himself uh, to other bishops and what they were accomplishing. I never would have dreamed it, but yet how human is that to do? Yeah, it must be tough. If we think about some of the great religious leaders, I'm sure the bishops have a tendency to do that. I mean, they do want to be the best that they can be at what they're doing. And I cannot imagine a harder job than being a bishop. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. <laughs> they say the best bishops are those who don't want to be bishops. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you for listening. Hopefully you have de derived something from this episode that's going to help you or someone in your life, you know, take the bull by the horns and seek treatment for a, a mental health disorder because we, if we don't have it ourselves, we probably know somebody who do. So thank you listeners for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend, invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or even on the radio. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review our show to help listeners find us. You can also find all of our episodes on our website, doctordoctor.org. We want to hear from you. Do you like the site? Do you have topics you'd like to see us cover? And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.